This is a Federal News Network podcast. In order to do good around the world, the U.S. Agency for International Development has to buy goods and services and make grants all around the world. It amounts to more than $20 billion a year. Overseeing it all is my next guest, who is also the recipient of a Presidential Rank Award. Mark Walther is USAID's Senior Procurement Executive and Chief Acquisition Officer, and he joins me now. Mr. Walther, good to have you on. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Give us a sense of the scope of what it is that you oversee. We know the dollar amount is large, but it's almost all overseas entities, which is really a procurement challenge. But give us a sense of the scope, the number of countries and the types of acquisitions, grants that goes on. Sure. We operate in 80 countries overseas. In addition to the programs we run out of headquarters here in Washington, I oversee approximately 250 contracting and agreement officers, both overseas and here in Washington. They have similar contracting and grant-making authority within each of the individual missions as we do here in headquarters. And we contract and grant to a whole range of organizations, local organizations, U.S. firms, nonprofit organizations, U.S. universities, the whole gambit. And what are the special challenges of dealing with overseas entities where they're just simply far away and they operate very often under different financial and governmental systems than we're used to dealing with U.S. federal contractors? Yeah, as you know, Tom, that really is kind of the key area of the challenge in regard to them not being familiar with U.S. regulations, financial accounting practices, and federal regulations of that particular nature. We do, though, take on a variety of techniques to overcome those challenges. We usually use kind of a two-step process, you know, a concept paper approach, one, you know, so that they don't have to invest significant money to have an approach considered by the agency. We also use kind of fixed amount awards or fixed amount grants where you have milestone payments instead of, you know, the just cost reimbursement throughout almost like staggered fixed price payments. So that helps a great deal. We also do a lot of outreach in regard to having a one-stop portal. Uh, We've called it workwithusaid.org so that organizations can do self-assessments and have other uh, resource tools available to see how ready they are to partner directly with the agency And obviously, we partner a lot, though, with uh, U.S. firms that also sub-award and subcontract with those local entities. And do you have contractor officer representatives in those countries that can kind of keep an eye on things for you? Uh, Yes, we do. So we have our contracting and agreement officers in our missions, as well as our uh, cores, and we call them AORs uh, as well. And I'd also like to recognize, too, we have foreign service nationals that uh, serve in our missions as well. Our Foreign Service Nationals, or FSNs, as we refer to them, you really have firsthand knowledge of local conditions and the environment in those countries, and they're a highly talented group, and they work hand-in-hand with our U.S. Foreign Service uh, counterparts in overseeing the, you know, kind of the monitoring and oversight uh, of these awards. Now, the Department of Defense and the State Department also do a fair amount of overseas contracting. Do you ever compare notes with them on outfits and contractors and even grantees? Yes, we do have connections with the interagency and other departments. We are kind of unique just in that we do the whole breadth of contracting and grant making, uh, cooperative agreements and other types of engagements, government to government, uh, et cetera. 
So kind of the nature of our awards being the multi-year kind of technical assistance and all the different sectors, health, economic growth, democracy, makes us a little different as far as the types of things we're buying or the activities we're supporting. We're speaking with Mark Walther. He's Senior Procurement Executive at the U.S. Agency for International Development and a new Presidential Rank Award recipient. And with respect to the overseas contracts, they are related to what program USAID is executing in that particular country. So how do the requirements get translated to procurement so that you know exactly what it is you need to buy in terms of not so much, I don't know, goods and services, prices and deliveries, but what they're actually trying to accomplish? That is the mission of the particular program. Yeah, our mission directors are working with their host country counterparts to determine what sectors, what areas are uh, priorities within that country. And naturally, we're also trying to promote U.S. interest in priorities as well. So a lot of the time, it just depends on what particular conditions in a country rise to the top, whether it's health-related concerns, whether it's uh, advancing private sector engagement, economic growth. And in most cases, we do a variety of programs in each of the individual countries. And it's just a question of magnitude, depending on the host country counterparts and where the particular emphasis are. I'm driving at, do the procurement people talk to the program people on a regular basis so that you have a feel for what it is you're buying and acquiring for? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, We kind of uh, use, you know, almost uh, or advocate an integrated team approach. You know, we are in contact with our technical and program colleagues and vice versa. The more engagement you have, the greater likelihood of better performance and impact. So that is always emphasized across the board to have those relationships with our technical program colleagues that we collectively do our best in in advancing our agency's mission. And how do you deal with subcontracting overseas? Because you want to make sure that the subcontractors are full and legit as the contractors are and that they're not sending subcontracts to somebody's brother-in-law or, you know, some tribal associate, but that it's on the basis of best value to the U.S. government and to the mission uh, in that country. Yeah, our prime contractors are responsible for, you know, the competing of subcontracts and subawards. We do do approvals and consents to the particular subawards being active. They would be included in the kind of the monitoring and oversight responsibilities, you know, while we act through the prime in that in these particular areas, we're equally as concerned with the, you know, the entire program scope and performance to, to and make sure uh, accountability is gained across the board. And there is some history of the U.S. procurement system being used as a model for developing countries. I remember after the breakup of the USSR and all of these newly respawned nations turned to the United States for guidance in how to set up governmental procurement systems and other types of processes since we know what we're doing here in general. Do you think that some of the work you've done with overseas contractors has maybe translated a little bit more horizontally in those countries and perhaps helped them improve what might not be as sophisticated or as, frankly, honest a system as we enjoy here? Yeah, I do think we've been instrumental in helping ensure greater capacity within local organizations, within the host country governments, and obviously, we also work alongside uh, the multi-donor community as well uh, in these areas. Uh, in, in most cases, where we're all on the ground together, taking advantages or leveraging certain different aspects of our own programs or their activities. 
So in other words, it's fair to say that the work of procurement in the countries, in the 80 countries, in some sense expands the direct mission that USAID had going there in the first place. Yes, I think procurement has been instrumental along with, again, our technical areas of emphasis and sector-oriented approaches to, again, advance localization, which is a key effort that has been ongoing and advancing more fully. All right. And what drives you? What motivates you all these years in procurement? Because, you know, from the externally, now you and I know better, but externally, people wonder federal procurement, that's got to be dull. But tell us the real inside story and what has kept you going these years. Well, for me personally, it's uh, the mission of our agency. Uh, development and humanitarian assistance uh, at uh, USAID is unique. You know, you think of it as in parallel to the Peace Corps and, and other efforts where we're really trying to help and promote individuals that are abroad, that are trying to advance in their own capacities. And uh, it's just a very rewarding environment. Uh, The collaboration, both internally with our technical and program and our leadership colleagues, but also with our partner community, our contractors and grantees. We really have been very forward-leaning in that space and in the partnership arena, and they provide a variety of expertise and insights that we welcome as well. And the pandemic aside, normally, do you get the chance to hop on a plane and go check things on the ground yourself? We do have the opportunity, and there are a lot of TDY travel requests from the field, given surge capacities that are needed. So, Those opportunities are great, and then you get to see firsthand some of the actual benefits of the paper pushing that you do at your desk. So it really is very rewarding to get out into the field and and see the programs firsthand. Mark Walther is Senior Procurement Executive at the U.S. Agency for International Development and a new Presidential Rank Award recipient. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. It's been a pleasure, and I'd like to thank my contracting and agreement officer colleagues uh, here in Washington and around the world for their steadfast support and commitment to our agency. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, Welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent, and what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing 
we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly 
gay Black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.